Hello and welcome to EMS in the Motor City. On this Demcast, you'll hear from amazing EMS physicians and some of the best EMS providers from in and around the city that moves the world. So grab a seat, buckle in, and away we go. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Motor City EMS podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Rob Dunn. Hello. Damon Gorlick. Hello, everyone. Dr. Stephanie Wise. Hello, everyone. And myself, Dr. Matthew Ball. We're going to talk about a very important topic with a lot of pitfalls and opportunity for excellent clinical management in the pre-hospital environment, traumatic brain injury. Talk about the protocol, clinical management, things to avoid, etc. So let's say you're called to the scene of a motor vehicle collision. You find the sole victim, a 35-year-old male who is the unrestrained driver. He's found outside of the vehicle on the highway with significant abrasions and lacerations to his forehead. He's got shallow breathing. He only really groans when stimulated but won't open his eyes or move. His vitals are pretty normal aside from some tachycardia and tachypnea. So what do you do with this patient? Uh, How do you manage them, and what are the things specific to this disease process that you want to avoid to ensure the best outcome? Well, well, Dr. Ball, I think one of the first things we should really ask is, what exactly is a TBI, and how does it, you know, especially in the EMS realm, and how can we look for it, and what should we be thinking about when we do come across these type of patients? As with all disease processes, the first step to treating a disease is recognizing it. So uh, traumatic brain injury is just what it sounds like, a traumatic brain injury. So in any traumatic scene where someone has had a collision between their head and some other object, you should be thinking about TBI. As in the example case that we talked about, definitely think about it with someone with a depressed GCS uh, or other signs, odd behavior, repetitive questioning, uh, issues with memory, uh, things like that. Now, is a TBI the same thing as a concussion, or how are we supposed to distinguish between those two? Because I know a lot mm-hmm. of people talk about it's just a concussion, it's this. You know, we all hear about concussion protocols. Is there something that we should be doing in the field to help manage this patient? That is an excellent question. And the thing to remember is a concussion is a type of a TBI. Some people will use those terms interchangeably, but sometimes it's more of considering a spectrum of the disease process. You can have a minor traumatic brain injury that is technically a concussion where somebody lost consciousness briefly, but they've completely returned to their baseline. They may have minor symptoms like a headache for a couple of days, and then everything heals and they're fine. It can go all the way to a much more severe disease process where there is significant impact and significant injury to the brain itself. And in some patients, it can cause longer-term issues. It can cause significant morbidity and mortality, and it can cause a lot of long-term disease as well for some of these patients. And we're talking about a lot of head injuries per year. The estimate from some of the most recent data, which is from hospitalizations in 2020. So these are people bad enough to be hospitalized. There are 214,000 traumatic brain injuries that required hospitalization in 2020 and 70,000 brain injury related deaths. You know, we talk about that a lot that 
you know, there's a lot of traumatic injuries that, that maybe we can't do anything about. And sometimes uh, there are head injuries that clearly kill somebody on the scene. But it's those people that have the worst injury, that are still alive, that have potentially preventable death, that we really want to manage that patient well to prevent that traumatic brain injury from either killing them or causing even more disability. And traumatic brain injury is a pretty unique among other traumatic injuries. Uh, a lot of times in the pre-hospital, out-of-hospital environment, there's not that much that you can do aside from scoop and run and get to the hospital as soon as possible. This is a scoop and run type situation, but there's a lot of management on the EMS side that can have a significant impact on people's outcomes. And what would you guys like to see as far as hospitals when we bring these patients into like what type of treatments? Is there certain positions we should put them in? Oxygen, IV starts? I think it would be good to delve a little bit into our new state protocol to answer some of that question because there are fine points to the management that you can certainly optimize what you are doing with the patient. And if you haven't had a chance to look at the new protocol suite as they are coming out, we would definitely recommend that you review especially this one to see the management pearls. It's something that is new across the state, and it is something that we are trying to provide education so that we know that pre-hospital providers understand the best way to manage these patients. So when we talk about on scene, we start with the basics of scene management, scene safety, ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, and just the general management of trauma. Then we get into the idea of recognizing that this is indeed a patient who appears to have a traumatic brain injury. So that information, that initial assessment that you're getting on scene that you got from bystanders, that all helps the care of that patient down the road at a trauma center. You want to know what happened, what's the patient's initial state, because sometimes EMS may arrive and a patient is unconscious at that time, but has improved by the time they get to the hospital. That mental status, that reassessment, that assessment of injuries, the mechanism of injury as best you can determine it. Speaking on the hospital side, when we hear they were very altered at the scene, even if they look great when you bring them into the emergency department, that can make a huge difference in our decision-making process and management. So Dr. Ball mentioned that there are some very specific points that we want to emphasize in managing a pre-hospital traumatic brain injury patient. And I think this comes down to three major things to be cautious of. We're talking about avoiding hyperventilation, avoiding hypoxemia, and avoiding hypotension. It's important to note that the protocol itself that outlines the best ways to avoid those big three uh, apply to people with a moderate or severe TBI. So that would be anyone with trauma, a mechanism consistent for a brain injury, i.e. they bonked their skull on some other object, and one or more of the following, loss of consciousness or altered mental status, multi-system trauma that requires positive pressure airway management, seizures, pre-traumatic or post-traumatic, whether they're continuing or not. And when you talk about infants, mental status can be a little bit difficult to interpret. Uh, just try to try to look for alertness or responsiveness or any alteration in their level of consciousness. 
And remember that many of the worst traumatic brain injuries are suffered by patients who have multi-system trauma. So doing what's best for that patient and getting them to definitive care and preventing that hypoxemia and hypotension is good for all of their injuries, but it's especially important for their brain. That's a great point, really. And, you know, I think in terms of awareness, there are probably two points here. Be on the lookout for the sequela of isolated head injuries. If you see head injury, be thinking about mental status. And as you do the head-to-toe exam on a critical polytrauma patient, don't forget the head part. Uh, try to pay, again, close attention to their mental status, neuro exam, responsiveness, et cetera. Now, is there anything that EMS should not do with a TBI patient? Is there something that we think that may be helpful that could be traumatic, such as once they start seizing, should can they still follow the seizure protocol? If there are other complications, is, is there, you know, what is the best practice for e- EMS? So, yeah, you want to make sure you're taking care of the patient just like you're following the trauma protocol. Seizures, uh, ongoing seizures, if someone seizes once and then stops, you need to be prepared to treat their seizures. But I think a lot of that has to do with the good, supportive care. Matt, why don't you talk about uh, hypoxia? Yeah, and it's convenient we... uh, uh that's at the beginning of the ABCs, airway breathing. So hypoxemia is bad in general, uh, but it's especially bad when you talk about head trauma and mild to moderate TBI patients. And if you think about this, it makes a little bit of intuitive sense. If you're less conscious, that's because your brain is either not getting enough sugar or not getting enough oxygen. In this case, it's probably a deficit in blood flow and delivery of oxygen. Uh, So your brain is in an oxygen-starved state, so we need to maximize oxygenation to the extent that's possible. Our protocol recommends high-flow O2 for anyone with a moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. Now, if you've been around for a while, that might strike you as a little bit odd. Gone are the days of Mona B, where we're giving empiric oxygen for ACS, for example. Really, medicine has moved away from empiric oxygen in general, but this is a very special situation. And if you think about it, it makes some intuitive sense. If you're less conscious, in this case, it's because your brain is oxygen-starved. So you want to maximize the amount of oxygen that's delivered through your bloodstream to make sure that you're uh, giving your brain all the nutrition that it needs. Uh, so high flow for all. And this is actually based on a, a, a number of research studies that have shown that even a single hypoxic episode after a traumatic brain injury can double or even triple a patient's mortality. So it's super important. Uh, and our protocol establishes a much lower threshold for providing supplemental oxygen in TBI patients, but it also establishes a little bit of a higher threshold for taking over the airway uh, and intubating. Um, the protocol reads that an advanced airway should be placed only when a BVM is ineffective uh, or there's some other issue with bagging the patient, long transport times, etc. And that actually has to do with the other thing that we're trying to prevent, hyperventilation. So, Dr. Wise, how can we be cognizant of of hyperventilation, and what are some ways EMS can help prevent from doing it? And why is it important to avoid it? So this is where we have to make a distinction between oxygenation and ventilation. Oxygenation is related to the amount of oxygen in a patient's bloodstream going in through the lungs into the bloodstream available to distribute to organs, including the brain. 
ventilation has to do with the removal of carbon dioxide as we are breathing out. And although having adequate oxygen or as much oxygen available as necessary is important, it is also important to not cause a low amount of carbon dioxide in the system or what we call hypocarbia because hypocarbia causes vasoconstriction. In other words, the blood vessels, including the blood vessels in the brain, constrict. And that actually reduces the amount of blood flow to the brain that needs more blood flow to get more oxygen. And if you provide ventilations at too fast of a rate, you're going to call, cause cerebral vasoconstriction, which is going to limit the amount of blood and oxygen to the brain. So what kind of rates are we looking at? When we're talking about an adult patient, we're talking 10 breaths per minute. And we also want to be aware that we're not trying to squeeze an entire liter bag into the patient's lungs every time. We're trying to keep it at an appropriate amount of respiration, which is probably around 400, 500 cc's. So don't use both hands on the bag, is that what you're saying? Please don't. In pediatric patients, it's about 20 breaths per minute. And in infants, it's around 25 per minute. It's just, it's not that we're going much slower than normal. We're actually going at a relatively normal respiratory rate. Right, a normal resting respiratory rate. And if you think about it, it can be much more difficult than you realize to maintain a breath every six seconds for an adult. There are actually devices out there that will flash a light every six seconds to give you 10 breaths a minute. There are bags that have special control valves that only allow so much to go in and only so fast to help you control the amount that you're giving. But sometimes just simply counting every six seconds to make sure that you're actually cognizant that you're not overdoing it is important. And of course, even that bag valve mask can be connected to your waveform capnography, right? I know, I think probably every podcast we've done, we talk about waveform capnography. So, you know, use that waveform capnography, aim for that end total CO2, 35 to 45. That'll really tell you that you're doing the right job, right? You're looking at your pulse ox, you're using the tools that you have. Exactly. Definitely not the time for the white knuckle double hand rapid ventilation. And this effect is very real. Uh, On the hospital side, when we have a patient who has excess pressure uh, in their brain from a bleed or other injury, we will intentionally hyperventilate them to decrease blood flow to the brain as sort of a last-ditch effort to bring the pressure down. I'm not recommending that you all do that in the field, but just an illustration of the idea in practice. Well, and that's something that really only works for minutes, right? That, that's what you're doing while you're putting a hole in the patient's head or something else. They're going to the operating room. I, I think there's some misconceptions out there um, from both the hospital side and the uh, pre-hospital side over the years about you know, a perceived benefit of hyperventilation. That, that benefit to the in, intracranial pressure is is very brief, very transient while you're doing something else. So you, you really want to not get the downside of hyperventilating. Now, what about the blood pressure? How aggressive or not aggressive should we be with maintaining that, and how important is it? Well, the answer to that question is to be aggressive. Uh, and this is kind of tied in with our conversation about hypoxemia. 
if your brain isn't doing what it's supposed to do, uh, i.e. there are signs of global dysfunction, decreased level of consciousness after you're injured, your brain's not getting enough oxygen. And that is either related to the concentration of oxygen in your blood or the total amount of blood that is being transferred to your brain. If you lower your blood pressure, you're hobbling your body's ability to deliver much-needed oxygen to the brain in a time of crisis. So uh, our, the protocol recommends that you don't wait for patients to become hypotensive. Uh, this is the time to be proactive. We talked a little bit in the intro about the importance about of establishing an IV, uh, and especially when we think about the fact that a lot of these patients are critical polytrauma patients. That's probably something that you'll be doing anyway. So look for decreasing systolic blood pressure, uh, even if they're not quite hypotensive yet. If you see a trend, you see the writing on the wall, and you can't see a decreasing systolic blood pressure without getting repeat vital signs, uh, or other signs of compensated shock, whether it's an increased heart rate, increased respiratory rate. Uh, you should go ahead and be giving fluids. Uh, we, you would have a target blood pressure for adults of 90 to 140 millimeters mercury. For pediatrics, that's 90 to 130. Uh, and uh, that's uh, 10 to 14 years of age. And then below 10 years of age, uh, it's the formula of systolic blood pressure greater than 70 plus half the age minus 100. Uh, and, you know, those are details. Uh, make sure that you're getting blood pressures on these patients, repeating blood pressures. Make sure that you have the appropriate cuff size. Uh, but uh, the, really the take-home point is if you see that they're starting to move in the right direction, please do not be stingy with the fluids. And just to say that just like we were talking about even one or two brief episodes of hypoxia is bad, same thing for low blood pressure. We know looking now at thousands of patients and very good studies of brain injuries that even brief episodes of hypotension is associated with bad outcome. And remember when you're thinking about hypotension, you're trying to prevent other cause of hypotension. If the patient has external bleeding, let's stop that bleeding. Let's keep those blood cells inside the person. Now, what about TXA? Is that harmful to give to somebody that you think is having a TBI? Excellent question. And we used to have a concern several years ago that giving TXA in a tr brain trauma patient could cause significant worsening in their condition. And what we found was actually the opposite, that traumatic brain injury patients can have some benefit from administration of TXA, especially when administered early. So the benefit there, in addition to benefit of controlling severe bleeding from other causes, it's certainly something to be considered. And that's one of the good reasons that it is in the toolbox and that it is also addressed in the protocol to remind all of the providers that it's something to consider. So going back to the patient that we talked about at the beginning, that's a pretty significantly injured patient. So, you know, how is that patient managed and, and what's the next steps for that patient? Right. Yeah. This patient is definitely someone who should be on a lot of supplemental oxygen. So the non-rib breather, uh, depending on where their GCS lands, uh, and their own respiratory effort, you may need to assist them with a bag valve mask, uh, avoiding placement of an advanced airway if it is reasonable to do so while keeping in mind that we're trying to prevent hypoxemia at the same time. 
The patient's a little bit tachycardic. They're not quite hypotensive yet, but maybe that's the writing on the wall that we need to go ahead and start IV fluids. So I'd probably recommend IV fluids uh, for this patient as well. Now, is there anything else we can do to help monitor the patient? Entitled CO2, is is other things we should look at? Definitely. Pupils? Uh, yeah, uh, entitled CO2, especially if you're assisting with ventilation. Uh, look at the pupils, look at the mental status, do a good neuro assessment and reassessment to make sure that we're not trending in the wrong direction. Um, and, you know, this is the TBI episodes. So we're focusing just on TBIs, but be sure to look at the rest of their body. Uh, they, they, they have a body from the neck down too, uh, just because the most obvious injury is in this patient's face and cranium. Uh, uh, make sure that you don't miss uh, anything else. Hemorrhage control as needed. Um, you cannot bleed to death inside of your cranial cavity. There just isn't enough space, but obviously you can bleed to death from other uh, external hemorrhage. Um, and this is, again, a scoop and run situation. So do a good assessment and get them to the hospital double quick. So Dr. Wise, as we're assessing these patients and doing reassessments and stuff like that, what are some critical things that we should be on the lookout for that's really gonna make us be concerned? First, just pay attention to what is going on with the patient. What is their mental status? Are they alert? Are they confused? Are they unresponsive in some form? And then we've mentioned a few times the term GCS. And this is where GCS truly applies in medicine. This is the head injured patient or the trauma patient. And we are trying to get an idea of a neurologic assessment. We talk about things like posturing. And there are some providers who maybe have never seen to understand what exactly that is. If you haven't seen it, if you're not sure, it's something you can certainly look at pictures or videos that you could probably find online. But it has to do with a patient who's being stimulated and you start to see their extremities either flexing or extending altogether in a very strange motion that is just not typical for how somebody would normally respond. We'll put some links on our website to some good examples. Yeah, that it's important to just know what you're looking at. Posturing patients fall into the GCS in the category of motor. And we talk about GCS one on motor being that there's no movement, two and three are forms of posturing. And then you start to get into whether they are withdrawing from stimuli, localizing stimuli, or actually following instructions and following commands. Just a general note on the GCS is become comfortable with actually assessing it. We often hear on the hospital side when somebody calls in and says that a patient has a GCS of 15 and they're confused. And understanding that those two things can't go together because for verbal, dropping a point comes with confusion. If you're having a confused conversation, that's actually a GCS of 14. So spend a little time reviewing it because in a traumatic brain injury patient, it is important. And back to Damon's question before, what things do we monitor? Certainly monitor the GCS and watch for changes in the GCS. Other things to watch for would be a change in the pupils. If they start to get large and unresponsive, or if one starts to get larger and they become unequal, that is definitely something that the hospital personnel and the trauma team are going to want to know about as quickly as possible. 
And another thing to watch out for would be seizures because traumatic brain injury can lead to seizures and different types of trauma to the brain, whether it's an intracranial hemorrhage or a global injury can certainly start to cause other neurologic findings. And this is really the power of the GCS. So you can look at someone and five different people might describe their mental status five different ways. But when you calculate a GCS, it gives you some objective measure. But the real power is that you can go back and do another GCS when you reassess and establish a numerical trend. This is a scoop and run situation. This is not a scoop and ignore situation, though. There are, you know, whether you're talking about vital signs, GCS, mental status, it's so important to do serial assessments of these patients and to transport to the closest appropriate facility. Right. So those, so remember, this is a patient that needs to be in the highest level trauma center that's available to you. In our local protocols, you're going to go to a level one or level two trauma center if it's within 45 minutes. And it really makes a difference taking that patient to somewhere where they can't provide neurological intervention and have to secondarily transfer the patient is just going to delay definitive care. Obviously, there's parts of the state and other states where you're not going to be able to get to a center in a reasonable amount of time. And you want to make sure you're calling in, you're activating the hospital because even small hospitals will have transfer protocols that they can get started. So you giving a good report, you want to tell the facility what happened, what you learned, what the injury was, and about those reassessments. If your patient started unconscious and now is awake and talking, that's really important. If your patient started talking and is now unconscious or not responding at all, that's really important to know as well. And also everything that you've done for the patient. So Dr. Bao, what are some of the key takeaways that people should uh, take away from this? podcast. Definitely. So I think that uh, it's very important to be thinking about TBI, especially in your head trauma and polytrauma patients, because this is a space where you can have a tremendous impact. Um, You want to uh, first focus on the ABCs, global assessment of trauma, and then uh, especially in the head injured patients with uh, moderate to severe TBI, prevent hypotension by being aggressive and proactive with fluids. Don't wait for them to be behind the eight ball, so to speak. Be aggressive in treating hypoxemia by providing supplemental oxygen for every patient with a moderate to severe TBI. And if you do need to help them out with their ventilations, avoid hyperventilation. And again, I just want to reiterate that there is a good body of research that shows that even a single episode of hypotension, hypoxemia, or hyperventilation can significantly impact a patient's mortality. Their brains are starving, and we need to do everything that we can to provide the brain with enough blood flow and enough oxygen. It's a scoop and run situation, but that doesn't mean scoop and ignore. Uh, Do serial reassessments so that you can follow trends, and that can help you be proactive in your management of this patient. If you see that they're getting worse, if you see that uh, there are signs of herniation, uh, please, please have a very low threshold for getting in contact with medical control. They can help you out or uh, at the very least make sure that they have the resources available at the place that you go to, which should be the closest appropriate facility. In our MCA, DEMCA, that should absolutely be a level one or level two trauma center. Yeah, all of our trauma centers are set up 
to take care of neurosurgical trauma and polysystem trauma. So I want to thank everyone for listening. We will put the protocol and some links to some of this research on the demka.org website where you should be checking in regularly anyway. Thank you very much. This podcast has been produced by Aaron Brennan and engineered by Rob Dunn. Music is original by Dr. Matt Ball. We are recorded at Macrobiotic Music and would like to thank Demka Executive Director, Mr. Damon Gorlick. Mm-hmm.